And so what are some books that you can think of or plays that are like an accepted part of a literary canon that can maybe kind of be removed or replaced? Is there any that come to mind? Well, I guess thinking about theater, I would think that things that get done a lot maybe don't also have to be read. Mm-hmm. If I never have to see The Glass Menagerie ever again, <laughs> I'd be okay. Yeah. It's wonderful. It's lovely. Like, I guess I wouldn't never want to see it again, but that's one that I think is just, it gets done so much. Mm -hmm. Hi, and welcome back to The Plot a podcast on writing and how our words and stories are shaping the world today. I'm Sean Douglas, I'm an arts journalist and podcaster, and for this episode I'm joined by my friend and co-host Lauren McCrimmon for part one of what will be a two-part series on the literary canon. The literary canon, of course, refers to those books or texts that are considered to have particular historical or social importance. In the vast pantheon of all that has been written, The canon is the text we hold up as being key to understanding certain themes or time periods, the classics that supposedly educated people are expected to be familiar with. But of course, the notion of a literary canon, or canons for a particular time or place, carries with it a lot of questions. What gets to be canon and what doesn't? Who gets to decide? And how do we update the canon to better reflect women, people of color, and other minorities who tend to be heavily underrepresented on these kinds of lists. To frame this conversation, we'll be using the Open Syllabus Project at opensyllabus.org, which aggregates millions of college syllabi from around the world and has lists of the most commonly taught books. They have data for many different subjects and disciplines, and they even visually map the full galaxy of how they all intersect. It's quite impressive and worth looking at when you're done listening to this show. We had a lot of fun looking through their list on what was taught in English classes, and so during this episode, we'll be working our way through that list, sharing our thoughts on the selections. You'll hear our takes on what works we would want to see taught more or less often, what writers we felt were overrepresented or excluded, and what books we had to read over and over and over again when we were in school. I don't know that anyone has ever been required to read a single book more often than Lauren has had to read Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried. And since I'm sure listeners will have some thoughts on these books and our takes on them as well, we want to hear from you too. In the next episode, we'll go deeper into our more specific suggestions on what we'd add to the canon, and we want to include reader picks. So when you're done listening, share your thoughts with me at sean at seandouglas.com or tweet us at theplotpodcast, and we may read your comment on the next episode. A few notes before we start. I would want to clarify that this is not a conversation on whether these classic books are good or not. The vast majority of them have held up over time because they are indeed exemplary in at least one way, if not many. What we're discussing here is how necessary it is for those of us who want to be a part of a certain common literary conversation to know them, or to what degree they should be prioritized over other work. In a perfect world, we would be able to read everything, and people should feel free to like whatever they like. No authors are on trial here. But since we can't read everything, it becomes necessary to think about which perspectives are worth giving more or less priority to, and that's where thinking about how we shape the canon can become helpful. Second, there are times in this show when we refer to some books, like The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, 
as being high school books. This is not to suggest that they are somehow less sophisticated, unworthy of higher scholarship, or that books read in high school don't deserve to be read again later in life. We're merely saying these are books that get heavily analyzed in high school, are well understood by many students, and could be less emphasized in college syllabi to make room for more diverse perspectives. You'll also hear us talking about the slots that exist on syllabi for works of one type or another. I hope that doesn't sound dismissive, as we certainly don't think one writer from a particular demographic should be used to represent their whole demographic. By using this language of slots, we could have also said the number of places they have for a particular kind of book from a certain kind of category. By using this language of slots, uh, we're really just using it as a way of talking about syllabus construction and the ways in which writers can be marginalized by that. These are structures that have long favored white men, while usually relegating just a slot or two to female, African-American, Asian, or other types of writers. Lastly, I'd also note that Laura and I were both English majors at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the late 2000s and early 2010s, so we're coming from a similar background, and your education experiences may very well differ. So with all those disclaimers out of the way, let's dig into the literary canon as represented by the Open Syllabus Project, and see what we find. Well, hi, Lauren. Hey, Sean. Thank you for talking about the literary canon with me today. Yeah, it's something I'm kind of excited to talk about. This is an extra spicy topic to make this podcast particularly interesting. Oh, yeah. No, we'll try to make this more than... If that sounds dry, we'll try to make it more interesting than that. (laughs) Um, I mean, how can the literary canon sound dry? I know, right. But just in case someone feels that way... Um, I've been looking at the Open Syllabus Explorer from um, opensyllabus.org. It's affiliated with Columbia University, and it's just an online compendium where they've analyzed a bunch of different English language syllabi and compiled the most assigned texts from a bunch of different categories and a bunch of different areas of instruction. And it's a really interesting way to just see at a glance what everyone is learning and what is considered common knowledge to some degree that everyone is supposed to know. Right. And it really opens itself up to a lot of scrutiny now, I think, too, to say, like, is this something everybody should be learning? What what even is the canon? Like, is that is that a real thing? Is that completely arbitrary? Definitely the, looking at something yeah. like, is the canon outdated now? Yeah. With uh, lots of different people bringing in other perspectives, different books, things that you know, different discussions that should be kind of talked about, like, what actually is canon? Who decides that? Yeah. Because it does become the standard for being educated. Right. And so... And who created that canon? And should these standards be examined? Should we even have a canon? Mm -hmm. Opens up to a lot of questions. Yeah. So, do you think we should have a canon? What are your your thoughts on, on canon? Oh... Yeah, that, going in hard with the difficult questions right away. (laughs) I think having... And this is something, not to cut you off, this is something that I don't think is going to have, like, one right or wrong answer. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. For me, personally, I think having a baseline of this is something worth talking about is important. Mm -hmm. We don't have enough room in lives to teach every single piece of written work. That's just impossible. So having certain pieces that are kind of set up as, you know, exemplary in certain topics is important. So I think the canon we have now is that 
exactly correct, no. I think there's a lot that can be done with it. Mm -hmm. And certainly different genres and different authors and different perspectives that need to be talked about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's sort of where I am, where I feel like having a common conversation is important. Mm -hmm. And it's not that the current canon is bad for any reason, but just what is it leaving out? Right. And for so long, it was white men deciding that other white men were worth reading. Exactly. And And unfortunately, that hasn't changed much at all. Mm -hmm. There's been certain things added, but it's always under the banner of, oh, now we're going to talk about women. Mm-hmm. As like, oh, well, that's, They're you know, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we have the correct canon, which is white men, white straight men, mm-hmm. cis, just everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we have African-American authors. Mm-hmm. Oh, we have all of Asia. We're just going to put that under one little umbrella. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 it's odd. Yeah. And I've been thinking too about like how little Asian literature I read. Like I was looking over like old textbooks and other things I'd like read in college and stuff and trying to figure out like where the big gaps were. And I think that that was one of them. And since I was studying English, like I can see how that implies the Western canon and people who speak English. Right. But that also doesn't really leave a slot for people who wanted to study literature that wasn't in English, but then wasn't in some kind of like other thing like East Asian studies or right. I, some kind of I, category that wasn't really a literary category. I had to specifically take uh, an Asian American literary course in college in order to actually have a syllabus that had authors that were Asian. And they're from like, you know, America or Canada. But I, that was the only time I saw any of those on a syllabus was specifically Asian American literature. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was weird. Yeah. At least with like African-American literature or something. They can be like, yeah. this is American lit. We'll give you one book by a black author that will <laughs> represent African-American literature. Right. This is the one perspective you get. Like that's a, a bit of an exaggeration, but not right. really. Not, not super. <laughs> For my classes, it was usually Fences by August Wilson was like, that one I never read. Read a play by like... They wanted to do American drama, and mm-hmm. so they're going to give us one play. And they're like, we'll just make it Fences. And that was also something that was offered in high school, which I didn't read at the time. Mm-hmm. So I've had, like, at least five opportunities, just, like, over high school and college, to read Fences. Yeah. And I and- kind of felt like that could have been <laughs> better coordinated among different departments or something. Because it wasn't all just in theater classes, either. It was, like, right. American Lit, read Fences, like... Intro to theater, read fences. Taking a playwriting class, read fences. Taking another playwriting class, read fences again. (laughs) (laughs) We were talking about this a little Mm -hmm. before we started recording, but Mm -hmm. the amount of times you'd read certain books, Mm -hmm. just they were offered, like this book can slot into every single class. Mm -hmm. Ergo, you were going to read it seven or eight times Mm -hmm. over the course of your schooling. Mm -hmm. So one book I had to read just an insane amount of times was the things they carried by Tim O'Brien. And I read that, I think freshman year in high school, sophomore year in high school, I read it senior year in two separate English classes. And then I read it multiple times throughout college as well, just in a history class, English class, I read it in a creative writing class. It was crazy. Yeah. We had that in junior year of high school for Mm -hmm. me. But I did not count, encounter it anywhere else. 
I don't think. Okay. I may have had like one of the short stories now that I think about it in like modern lit or right. something. I think that like a piece of them was assigned at one point. Okay. Well, the things they carried was my fences in terms of how many times I had to read it. <laughs> it's like we want to read about contemporary war narratives. That's the only one. <laughs> <laughs> there are none others. Nobody else talks about the Vietnam War. That's definitely not a popular topic in literature at all. No. Clearly. It was just this like dark age where, I mean, even the dark ages weren't actually a dark age, but. Yeah. The only person talking about this is Tim O'Brien. Yeah. So let's take a look at just what the most assigned books are. Um, I would have you guess, but we've been looking at them together. So number one is A Writer's Reference by Diana Hacker. Which I have definitely had, I think, my freshman year of college. Hmm. That was a book that you're required to purchase. And I read through maybe 20 pages of it. So maybe you should go back and finish the rest. If I should. It is the number the one number most one. I don't remember that one. Unless it just like didn't leave enough of an impression. I, know, yeah, I feel like a lot of these are, a lot of the books, at least in the top, 50 are writing references and reading references and MLA guides, mm -hmm. which seem like something that teachers assign. And this would be a great idea for this class. And nobody actually reads them. It's, I feel like a lot of what these books are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I remember reading like some of like the writing guides that were assigned, but yeah. I also felt a little bit like they were optional. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I should clarify that Laura and I both went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, so our experiences will probably overlap somewhat. Right. But we didn't actually have that many of the same classes. We had some of the same classes, but... I think a few. Yeah. Just kind of some theater classes, I think. Yeah. But then different high schools. In and, the same uh, area of Wisconsin. Yeah. Should also clarify. Yeah. <laughs> so it's been a few years since we were in college, but not so long that I think that they will not be indicative of what a lot of people are experiencing so let's go through the list and actually get to like a novel or a non-guide right number three is frankenstein which does not surprise me absolutely but, not again that is a book i think i've read maybe three or four times just from various classes that it's been assigned in and it's a book that slots into a lot of different very specific classes books about you know classes about female authors or you know, um, gothicism and, and things like that. Yeah. I feel like it's like a, we want to study romanticism. Mm -hmm. So you're going to read Wordsworth and read Frankenstein, <laughs> which again, isn't necessarily a bad way to be efficient with just how you're working your way through the history of everything that's been written. But is it, it's just interesting that we keep kind of coagulating on these like same things. Although Frankenstein is something that's very prevalent in modern culture as well. Yeah. It's certainly become ingrained into pretty much everything. Mm -hmm. You're not going to, you know, everybody knows Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. They know the story. It's referenced all the time. It's parodied. Mm -hmm. So I think having the actual book it's based on is, is nice. Yeah. I do kind of think of it as like a more high school level novel yeah i mean obviously it's worthy of advanced scholarship like not to diminish it in some way but i would assume if i were an instructor that kids had already read frankenstein but i can see why those sort of assumptions are hard to make 
It, it is a phenomenal story. Mm-hmm. Especially, she was so young when she wrote she that. She was like 18. That's crazy. So, good job, Mary Shelley. Mm-hmm. And the so, next... Yeah, oh, number five is Canterbury Tales, which I think is... It's always the example of Middle English. Let's read the Canterbury Tales. Mm-hmm. And I had done one class where we read all of the Canterbury Tales. And after, like, you know, however many weeks, eight or nine weeks of doing it, I'm just so done with the book. Yeah. <laughs> I like the Canterbury Tales, but I can see how teaching all of them would be overkill. Oh, it was. It's just not really necessary. Absolutely uh, not. They're good. I mean, they're, they're, they're definitely worth reading. But I would say picking out, you know, two or three to read mm-hmm. and kind of looking at, you know, how the language has evolved. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. But you definitely don't need to read the entirety of the Canterbury Tales. Mm-hmm. It's a mm-hmm. lot. But yeah, I, I get why it's on here. Um, and we have Paradise Lost, which I think I liked more than you did. Yeah, I have vague memories of reading mm-hmm. it in college and... I usually am pretty good with remembering books. If I don't remember something, it means I was pretty bored by it. I think this one is tricky because I remember being assigned excerpts from it. Oh, okay. But never really like the whole thing. See, I did read the whole thing. Okay. That I can Which remember. Which may color our experiences with it. <laughs> it's very true. I, I forget if I ever had to read the whole thing. I must have at some point. But I also know that there were times when I was just assigned portions of it. Or where they would, like, skip through sections. Like, Mm -hmm. it'd be, like, the beginning and the middle and the end, but not everything in between. So I think that makes it seem a little bit more like an idea than an actual work. Gotcha. So number seven is Heart of Darkness, which does not surprise me that it made the top ten. Mm -hmm. That book is taught all the time. Yeah. I feel like that is the let's talk about colonialism. (laughs) Exactly. But again, it's another book that's just so prevalent in popular culture that I think reading it I think gives you a good base for understanding what those references are, what that means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think it's good grounding material. It's right. just There's so many perspectives on colonialism and what was going on at that time. Right. It does seem... He was Polish? I right? believe so. Right? Like, it was not written in his first language, which is also very impressive. Yeah. Um, but is this a subject that I feel like if you were to teach it, like maybe teach it as a cluster of colonial narratives and not just on its own. Number eight is Yellow Wallpaper, which is a short story. Um, and I've heard it's very trippy. It is. It's it's definitely worth a read if you can track it down. Mm -hmm. I think you should be able to find it online fairly easily. Yeah, there's a free version um, that I found. Um, so I should read that today. It did not look like it was very long. No, it's a pretty short read. Mm-hmm. Number nine is Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock by T.S. Eliot, which is the first actual poem we've had on this list, right? Mm-hmm. Canterbury Tales and Paradise Lost are kind of kind of poetry. Right. They're not like individual poems. Right. I like the Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Pretty like, sure everybody like does. Elliot. Yeah. Do you like Eliot? I love Eliot. Yeah. Then we have a rose for Emily. We get through a few in this next section that are like, I don't want to call them like the B-sides, but they're like not the most intuitive works by famous writers. Right. If you're going to think of Faulkner, what books are you going to think of? It's 
probably not Rose for Emily is the first thing that comes up in your mind. Yeah. Like I would think like the sound in the fury or right. as they lay dying or something. Right. Like I don't, I don't know what a Rose for Emily is. I actually, actually don't either. <laughs> uh, whoops. That was clearly not taught at UW-Madison or anywhere in Wisconsin, Mm -hmm. at least in our classes. Mm -hmm. And then shout out to Diana Hacker, who's now on the list for a second time. She is. With her chart-topping hit, The Bedford Handbook. She's got to have an award for that somewhere, right? Yeah. The Open Syllabus Award. (laughs) Then we have Story of an Hour by Kate Chopin, which I've read The Awakening. I read that in high school. But again, this is not like the first Kate Chopin thing I think of. Yeah. Especially given that there's only one Kate Chopin thing I think of. Right. <laughs> that is The Awakening. Uh, next up is My Last Duchess by Robert Browning, which I've personally never read. Yeah, I don't I don't know that one either. And I know then, Browning, I just don't know that one. Right, exactly. It's another <laughs> one of those, well, I know the author. I don't know what that is. Mm. But at least I've I've heard of who wrote it. <laughs> the next one I definitely have not heard of. I, I don't know what Hamlet is. Have, oh, did you by, ever have by to, Shakespeare? Did you ever yeah, read no, I have no idea what that is. Yeah, I don't know how that one got in there. They should have just put the Lion King in there. Yeah, I heard that. You know, mm-hmm. plots are I've heard that Hamlet is based on the Lion King. That's what I've heard too. Okay, everything's actually based off of a Disney property. So well, they say that that's Shakespeare got his ideas from other places. They're yes, all usually sourced from somewhere else. <laughs> he had a really well-used co- like VHS copy of uh, Lion King. That's how he did it. You've heard it here first, folks. Yeah. Um, so maybe instead of going through all of these... Oh, yeah, there's 50. We're not going to do yeah, that. Just go through <laughs> that all be... of them. Um, we promised you a not-dry episode. <laughs> yeah. So are there any that are jumping out at you? that are kind of either surprising or are like, no way that should be as high as it is. Let's see. I am surprised Great Gatsby is on here. That's number 22. If only because I feel like everybody has read that in high school. Yeah. So unless you're taking classes like specifically on Fitzgerald or like Americana during that time period, it, it feels a little odd to add yeah. it in. I know people that had to read it for American Lit, and fortunately my class didn't. I love The Great Gatsby, but I read it in high school. Like, I don't right. I don't need to read it again in college. Like, I'd rather read a different Fitzgerald or something. Um, I feel like sometimes professors approach their material like, what are the most important things I should include? As opposed to thinking about, like, what do these kids really need to know? Or what do they know already? Right. Well, going into the most important things that they should read is... Again, kind of coming into what is the most important thing you should read? Who decides that? Yeah. So who decided along the way that The Great Gatsby is the perfect example of American literature during this time? Yeah. As opposed to anything else? Mm -hmm. Don't know. Yeah. Like, I can see how it just contains a lot. Oh, it does. I mean, it is a very good book. in In an accessible, kind of very readable format. Right. But in some ways, it's almost, you know... It's so well-suited for high school that I feel like you can assume kids know it already. Yeah. On that same note, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn at 31. Again. That is also a very high school book. Again, very high school. And if you ever watched Wishbone, they Mm -hmm. absolutely had an episode about Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Mm -hmm. I want to see, like, the Wishbone version of some of these other ones. 
Like the wishbone, like... Wishbone Beloved? Yeah. Which is number 28 on this yeah. list. Beloved's really good. That's one that it, I've been thinking is. I should go back and read again. Again, I read it in high school. And I think it was a good one for a high school audience, because people responded very viscerally to it. It right. was good for, like, class debates and stuff. Right. Um, we had a really good honors English instructor who gave us Beloved and Angels in America and all this stuff that... I'm not sure she always got like officially approved by the school to teach. Yeah, that's but it was very that mature. You read stuff. Angels in America in high school. Yeah, we like read it aloud in class together. Okay, um, interesting. And and it was nice to have a teacher that trusted us with very mature material. Yeah, I think that was read during our AP English senior year, beloved. And I actually skipped out on AP English my senior year. I took a bunch of science classes instead. Well, but you, I had you seem the, to have made up for it. I did. I definitely stole the syllabus from friends and read everything on my own, but not enough room in, in life and the schedule for having multiple classes in there. Um, something else interesting. Where is that one? I'm surprised the first John Keats thing we have is Ode on a Grecian Urn. Mm-hmm. Which, I guess... again, I've read, but I didn't think it would be the most read thing by keats yeah i guess i remember reading in high school again and then i probably encountered it again somewhere in college but i'm pretty sure i did i took a lot of classics courses so you know it popped up several times there Mm -hmm. but they wanted you to think a lot about grecian arians oh yeah in in classics oh yeah um i don't know to his coy mistress by andrew marvel that i have no idea do we have the tempest there's going to be a lot of Shakespeare on here as I oh, scroll yeah. through, yeah. Which is probably an okay opportunity to me to for me to say we assign too much Shakespeare to kids in schools. We absolutely do. Mm-hmm. It's really good, but Shakespeare's legacy is not, you know, threatened by the fact that we might not teach five Shakespeare plays in high school and then require them to take a Shakespeare class to get an English degree. Yeah, that's really, really, really like quadrupling down on one person. So if Shakespeare is theater canon, mm-hmm. right? If we're looking at, if you're in theater classes, you're talking about theater. Mm-hmm. What plays do you read normally? It's Shakespeare. What else? That's all I got. <laughs> if, if you're talking about like theater canon? Or if, just like, like, uh, or like uh, So we're talking like literary canon. Mm-hmm. Things that are taught usually, as far as plays go, mm-hmm. Shakespeare. Yeah. Is the one that comes forefront. Yeah. Probably like Shakespeare first, then maybe Death of a Salesman mm-hmm. or A Streetcar Named Desire right. would show up. The Glass Menagerie, maybe. Mm-hmm. Those are all big guns. Um, you might do like Beckett if you're. That's, oh, that's I read, more of I read a Endgame. Deeper that was cut. a lot. <laughs> Interesting. But it was nice having something, a play other than Shakespeare, mm-hmm. to read. Oh, plays can also be this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who knew? I certainly yeah. didn't. And that's such a harsh contrast, though, to go from oh, Shakespeare it, oh, to Oh, it was. <laughs> it's like, give someone something that they can relate to, just so that they know that all theater isn't very foreign, or, yes. or meant to like take them to like really unexpected places. Like Give them something familiar. Right. Um, that's not old. That's not experimental. That's not absurdist. Okay. Yeah, I guess to reading any older 
Greco-Roman plays. Mm-hmm. Those might pop up. Oh, that's up. true. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of mm-hmm. forgot about those. Cause... Yeah. Like, the open syllabus has this neat kind of scatter plot map of how mm-hmm. all of these texts overlap. Right. And they kind of color code them all. And it's it's worth looking up. It's very interesting. And you can see the part that's like theater and literature where it all starts to kind of cross over. And right. they're like the plays that are more like plays and the plays that they come more like English. Right. And it's sort of arbitrary how they decide those things. Yeah. But like, so I don't what know, are somehow some of the... like Shakespeare accounts more like the English canon where like... You're going to encounter it in an English literature mm-hmm. class. Like a general yeah. English literature or yeah. British, you know, literature. And then I forget what the relief, this is totally theater and not at all English ones were. But I know that once you start getting into like Williams and like O'Neill and mm. some of that stuff, that starts being more like, well, this is more just theater and not English literature. <laughs> right. Yeah, the line, like who decided that? How did everyone come to the like general consensus that that was the right idea, or was it just kind of taught that way, and then everybody learned that you, these are the ones that you teach? Yeah, these are ones you ignore. These are ones you teach in the English literature. Yeah, like Albie shows up in there too sometimes. Yeah. Not a lot of recent stuff. I don't, I'm, I'm trying to no, think of like that's... the most like recent play is that is. I guess Angels in America maybe is like right. one of the most recent ones that counts. And that as a can be a problem with. Um, the canon in general mm-hmm. is a lot of it is skewed older and mm-hmm. books that like, stayed on there. They don't really take them off. You're going to learn this because mm-hmm. it's always, you've always learned this. Yeah. This is, it's always been here. And so what are some books that you can think of or plays that are like an accepted part of the literary canon that can maybe kind of be removed or replaced? Is there any that come to mind? Well, I guess thinking about theater, I would think that things that get done a lot maybe don't also have to be read. Mm-hmm. If I never have to see The Glass Menagerie ever again, <laughs> I'd be okay. Yeah. It's wonderful. It's lovely. Like, I guess I wouldn't never want to see it again. But that's one that I think is just, it gets done so much mm-hmm. that there are ways to encounter that play in life, even if you didn't have it talk to you in like a syllabus. Right. Um, I'd love to see more Chekhov in non-theater related stuff because I think that that's, it's older and there are things about it with everyone having multiple different names and stuff that could be a little bit alienating to new readers, Mm -hmm. but it's also surprisingly funny and I think it's very grounded. I don't know. It it worked for me because I really like Chekhov, but I think for, if you're trying to teach something that feels classic, Mm -hmm. it's still deep, but it's not hard to read. That's going to wrap up part one of our conversation on the canon, but there is a lot more to come. And before we get too far into our takes on what we'd want to see read more or taught more often, we want to hear from you. What works social or historical significance have gone overlooked or underrepresented? What deserve to be more widely read or studied? Send us your answers at sean at seandouglas.com or tweet us at theplotpodcast or at underscore Sean Douglas underscore. We look forward to your answers and may share them on the next episode. If you want to learn more about the Open Syllabus Project, visit opensyllabus.org. This podcast is a production for me, Sean Douglas, and this episode was associate produced by Lauren McCrimmon. Our ending credits music is by Tan Chong Hyu. The plot is available on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and other major podcast providers. If you liked this episode, please subscribe. And if you can think of others who might enjoy this show as well, 
we'd greatly appreciate it if you shared it with them too. We'll be back with the second part of this series in two weeks, which should give you just enough time to reread the things they carried another seven times. Until then, that's our show, and thank you for listening.